Welcome to Mates in Courage, brought to you by Good News Unlimited. Be part of a conversation between Graham Hood, champion fisherman, airline pilot and school dropout, and Ali Gonzalez, wannabe fisherman and holder of more useless degrees than you can poke a stick at. What could these two possibly have in common? The fact that neither of them have anything to hide. That's what. Mates in Courage. Take a listen. G'day, Graeme. How's it going? Pretty well, Ellie. How's the farm looking? Well, we're having a green drought at the moment. We've had a bit of rain, which brings the grass on. There's not much feed in it, and the dams are empty, so it's it's still pretty dry here, but it looks pretty. As you can see, it looks beautiful. Australia's been having a rough, rough trot. Yeah, we have. We with have. Uh, rains and droughts and stuff. Yeah, look, we've got cattle dying of lack of feed in the south part of the country. In the north part, there's hundreds of thousands of cattle drowning in floods. It's just bizarre. Talking about cattle and animals, I remember... Years ago, you told me a story of when you were crop dusting. I know you landed the plane and there was an animal in a well or something. Oh, that was cattle mustering, not crop oh, dusting. Oh, sorry. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was, Set me of, straight. Well, one of my first flying jobs was mustering cattle with a fixed-wing aeroplane on a three-and-a-half million acre uh, bunch of properties in uh, the Channel Country in um, Western Queensland. That must have been fun. Oh, amazing. I think it's the best overall experience of my life as far as flying and real adventure goes you know mm. to be a, a bush pilot in the outback doing that sort of stuff and i flew and flew and flew i i, I landed out there in the middle of a um a boom in the cattle price and there were lots of cattle that were being mustered and sent to market because mm-hmm. it was you know it was big profits being taken and so i had my my backside strapped into an aeroplane almost 24 7 it was amazing it was a good way to cut my teeth but there was a horrendous time during the period i was out there where we were going through a very hot dry drought Uh, 50 degree temperatures were pretty Mm. normal for long periods of time and the outback of australia is a a very unforgiving place Mm -hmm. Uh, for example you have these hot dries uh, and all the wells and, and uh, bores stop pumping and the wells dry up. And um, after long periods of nothingness, there'll, there'll be a, a heavy wet season in the top end of Australia and all that drains down through the Cooper Channel country towards Lake Eyre. And on a beautiful crystal clear blue mm. month or so, you can have no rain and yet still be, still be in floods because all the floodwaters move down from up north. And then you have to live through those floods and you see cattle stranded and people stranded and we're doing food drops. And then when the floods recede, there's this amazing sandfly plague that lasts for 10 days because Mm -hmm. the the soil is softened and uh, released the hatchlings of eggs that were laid the previous flood by sandflies. And the men who work the cattle station, the men and women, are are then building green fires, uh, smoky fires for the cattle to... uh, to escape the uh, and horses to escape the biting, stinging sandflies, and I've been standing with a group of men with with horses in a smoky fire to get some relief, and been shoulder to shoulder with wild kangaroos that have come in and stood near the <laughs> fire with us just to escape the the sandfly plague. No, but they're not dumb. No, and you know, literally, horses uh, die of exhaustion. Horses and cattle die of exhaustion because they keep running to get away from the sandflies. And I remember once patting a horse on the chest. And when I pulled my hand away, it was covered in blood from the bites of the sandflies. Just horrendous. Prior to that happening, there was this immense drought. And the station manager, Nigel, uh, asked me to go on a a bore run, which was a flight where I flew around 
I had a map of this big property, 12,000 mm. square miles of property. And I flew around this property looking at all the bores, the windmills, to make sure they were pumping. Now, but water, isn't it? Water, yeah. They're pumping yeah. water from uh, the uh, sub-artesian basin. So how, how these things are set up, there's a team go in and they drill a bore that's sometimes several hundred feet down. They lower a, a five-inch steel bore casing down that and a windmill sits at the top of that and the rotating windmill lifts a pump up and down repeatedly on wooden rods and, and there's a brass foot valve at the bottom which sucks the water up from mm-hmm. the artesian well. That pumps then past a network of fencing into what's called a turkey's nest. Now, on this property where I was working... A turkey's nest was a very large corrugated iron tank that was dug into the ground or had earth pushed up around the edge mm-hmm. of it. And it had to be fenced off because if any animals got into the tank, they couldn't get out and they would do a lot of damage. So apart from drowning and fouling mm. up the water. So the turkey's nest was always inside a fence. The boar pumped the water in a pipe to the turkey's nest and water came from another pipe out of the turkey's nest outside the fence to a trough. Mm. that was outside the fence so that the cattle and horses and other animals could take water from the from the turkey's nest. So my job over three or four days was to fly this property, flying over each of the windmills, noting whether the tanks were full, mm-hmm. the turkey's nests were full, noting whether the windmill was turning and it was pumping water and whether there were leaks or whether the troughs were leaking because quite often the, the fittings that are going into the troughs break down and they leak and that mm-hmm. causes a lot of mud and damage. And, and this particular week that I did that, uh, one of the first sites I came across, which I'll never forget, was a completely empty turkey's nest, uh, no water in it at all. And lying in the bottom of the turkey's nest were the rotting corpses of about 20 wild horses, Brumbies, Ooh. that had um, not been able to get water. There'd been obviously a bit of residue in the bottom of the tank and these horses had jumped in to get the water and couldn't get out and they'd all died a horrible death, starved to death and, and died of thirst in this turkey's nest. And it... To see something like that just breaks your heart because we have an affinity to animals. Mm. So I reported that and, and when the stock camp went through there several months later, they uh, they threw diesel into the dry tank and burnt the bones of the horses and restored it and, and fixed the fencing up that allowed the horses in and the process continued. And another time um, I flew over a, a, a turkey's nest and I noticed some live animals in the bottom of it and I landed next to the turkey's nest in the plane and I went over and um, had a look inside the tank and I could see uh, a site that was rather ghastly. There was a muddy slush in the bottom. There wasn't much water left. And there were the rotting corpses of a couple of cows and um, a couple of dead kangaroos. There was a large dingo that had died. And left in the tank alive were two animals. One was a doe kangaroo, a kangaroo, a female Mm -hmm. kangaroo, a red, and a dingo pup. Mm. Now... It was obvious that the the female kangaroo had had a joey, a baby kangaroo in a pouch, which had been eaten by one of the dingoes because, remember, there was a dead one in there as well. Mm. And I deduced by looking at what was going on that the mother of the half-eaten joey was the kangaroo that was still alive and the pup of the dingo was the uh, the baby of the mother dingo that had died. And what had happened was, because I jumped down into the tank as ghastly as it was to try and get these animals out, and every time I approached the dingo pup to get it out first, the kangaroo attacked me. So the kangaroo had actually taken on mothering the dingo pup. It was like a surrogate. And it was very protective of the dingo pup, which is probably the animal that ate its baby. Now, the kangaroo 
uh, had a broken tail, which is ghastly for a kangaroo because that's like one of their legs. They uh, they use that for everything. And the pain, it's a very weighty member of their body mm. and the pain of the weight of a tail dragging down on a broken joint would have been horrendous for that kangaroo and it was very distressed. And I um, struggled to get a hold of the dingo pup and I finally got a hold of the dingo pup and the, the kangaroo was too exhausted to attack me. And I threw the dingo pup up on the bank of the turkey's nest and it ran away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I then tried to grab the kangaroo and I couldn't. So I climbed out of the tank and I crept around the edge of the tank because the kangaroo was against one side. Mm-hmm. And I could just see the tips of its ears sticking up above the tank. And I reached over and grabbed it by the ears and I dragged the whole kangaroo over the bank alongside me. Wow. And we were just laying there. Uh, I was exhausted. The kangaroo was exhausted and it was just laying there looking at me with its eyes wide open. Was it a red? A red. You said before. A big red. So it's big. It's a big animal. How did you do that? I I just heaved it out of there with everything I had. Mm -hmm. and, And as I said, we collapsed on the bank and this thing was looking at me panting, heavily panting. It was wild-eyed. Had these beautiful, mm. big brown eyes that were mm. like they were like cricket balls. It was so frightened, and I thought, "Oh, what am I going to do with it now?" I did have a gun in the uh, in the plane. I didn't want to shoot the kangaroo, but I wondered how it would survive with a broken tail. And then I thought, "No, it's not going to survive." I could see it was trying to get up, and it was struggling, and I th- it was emaciated as well. And I thought the most humane thing to do would be to shoot it. And I went to the plane to get the gun and when I looked back for a moment, I saw it get up and hop around the tank and it jumped back in again. Oh. And I got it out one more time and it did the same thing again. It jumped back in. And you know what? I I think back on that now because we deal a lot with some pretty broken people and Mm. you look at domestic abuse, the number of women who go through domestic abuse and keep going back, they keep getting back into the tank Mm. or they'll get themselves away from the man who's abusing them or the, the husband or the wife who's abusing them because domestic abuse takes up both forms. Mm-hmm. And they'll start a relationship with somebody else who has a propensity to do the same thing to them and so they keep jumping back into the tank. It's like going from the frying pan into the fire. Mm-hmm. And it was a real metaphor for me that stood out. But this kangaroo was much more at home living in the horror of that tank than it was facing a future on the dry plains of the Cooper Channel country with a broken tail. So I eventually drew a bead on the animal and I shot it. And I I love animals. I, mm. I don't like killing animals. But I shot this kangaroo to put it out of its misery. I was there alone. I was in the middle of nowhere. I looked all around me. I couldn't see another soul. I was in the middle of nowhere and I, um, speaking of animals, that's my dog um, Millie barking in the background. Mm. Molly barking <laughs> in the background, my border collie. And uh, I cried. Yeah. I had a really good cry. It was a very emotional moment to see what those animals had suffered from. Uh, and I had a really good cry because I think that um, there's an innocence about animals that we all tend to relate to and we, we can uh, intellectualise our feelings amongst other people. But when it comes to animals, there's something about animals that um, brings us back to our core, I think. They've got an intelligence. Uh, so there's something so special about them. Uh, our family has a little dog called Theo. Hmm. He's a cross, uh, Shih Tzu, uh, King Charles Cavalier, Spaniel. Ugliest little dog you've ever seen, right? <laughs> I don't say that about you've him. You've seen him, haven't you? I know Theo, yeah. yeah he's dribbled all over me. He's got a crooked jaw. He's got a fangs hanging, hanging out of his mouth. One eye's turned, so he's never looking at you straight. He's got a face only a mother would love, yeah. And his hair grows long if we don't clip it, and so his, his face looks just like a ball of fur sometimes. Yeah. 
But you know what? When my father died, when he committed suicide, uh, that was a very traumatic event in my life. And uh, the day of his funeral, which was a very traumatic funeral, maybe something for another chat we have, but anyway, the day of his funeral, when we got home, Theo wouldn't leave my side. Mm. You know, wherever I went, he would just come and, and sit or, or lie beside me. And then that night, and Theo doesn't sleep on our beds usually, that night he insisted on jumping up on the bed and sleeping with me. You know, I know. It was my dad. How? How did he know? And then three years later, my, my mother passed away and I and the family were there and, and at the nursing home by her bedside when she passed away. Then we went home. Exactly the same. Mm. Not it wasn't my wife that he wanted to be with or my children. He just wouldn't leave my side. And that night he insisted on sleeping on the bed with me. And I'm I can be pretty tough. I don't normally let dogs sleep on the bed. Mm. But I couldn't stop him that day, you know, and because I I mean I could understand that he wanted to be there to comfort me. Mm. How on earth could he know? And I've noticed since then how intuitive he is to our feelings, you know, to what I'm feeling or my wife is feeling mm. or the children if they're ill. Mm. He just wants to be there to, to comfort, to share that time, to protect. You know, I don't know what goes on in little dogs' minds. How could that be possible? It's amazing. What about that story of Greyfriars Bobby? I think it's in Edinburgh or Glasgow. Yeah. There's a statue of a little Scottish Terrier, Highland Terrier. I saw the movie, the black and white movie, when I was a kid. It really impacted oh, yeah. me. Yeah, me too. I mean, the fact that dog um, daily would visit the grave of its master, who was mm. you know, a poor man who died in, in poverty and um, was buried in Greyfriars Cemetery. Mm. And uh, the, the locals used to feed Bobby. He would sit on his grave and slept on his grave until he died. And I think there's another one recently where... Um, I think it was in Europe somewhere where a dog had seen its master hit by a car mm-hmm. at a major traffic intersection in the city and it's never left that intersection. It stayed there. There's something unconditional about the love that dogs have for us. That um, you know, I, I remember in some of the darkest periods of my life being really mean to my dogs because I was mean about everything. I didn't like anything. I didn't want to, mm. you know, and I'd always be angry. I had a, a golden Labrador called Toby and I was... We did one chat on forgiveness and one of the things I haven't been able to forgive myself for was how cruel I was to him sometimes. I was a bit too heavy-handed with him. He was a bit of a wandering dog. And, but I shared the very intimate last moments of his uh, of his death in the, in the front yard of the uh, vets in Cairns where I took him to be euthanised because he had bad hip dysplasia. And the vet said, I'll give him a sedative to calm him down. And uh, the vet gave him a sedative and I took him out and we sat under a palm tree in the in the garden of this vet surgery and the dog just rested his head in my lap while I stroked him and he was just looking up at me with this understanding and then the vet came out and gave him mm. a lethal shot and it just broke me. I wanted to tell him I was really sorry for everything I'd every mean thing I'd ever done to him and um and he gave me a look that says it's okay, I understand. Um cuts me up cuts me up Mm. and you know from where we're sitting now looking out over the beautiful green hills of northern new south wales there's a bush i can see just in front of me where my um 10 year old border collie matthew uh has not long been buried after being bitten i think bitten by a snake Mm. one of the most loyal dogs beautiful animal 
and we lost him at age 10 and it broke our hearts to, to have to bury him. And um, we have an affinity with animals, we have a love for animals and they share an unconditional love with us and it's a pity we don't have that with people. You know, uh, I've got a similar experience because uh, since I've been married, Theo is the second dog that, that we've had. Mm. The first one, yeah, I was mean to. I was heavy-handed with as well. Yeah. And I regret that, but I kind of think that how we treat animals reveals a lot about where we are, who we are, and where we're at in life. Where we're at, yeah. You know, I don't think it's who we are no, as much yeah. as where we're at. Where we're at, yeah. Uh, you know, and how we are, yeah. In a sense, not who we are, yeah. but where we're at in life. Yeah, you're right. Because you know, I treat, I know, I treat Theo in a completely different way than what I used to treat my other dog. Yeah, I treat him with compassion, you know, yeah. with understanding. You know what? I think he gets it. Yeah. You know, it's know. it's really weird. And so it's for me it's also like a marker of my own growth as mm. a as a person, as a man that that I yes, I have changed. Yep. You know, because I actually I treat animals differently. Yeah. I've always loved animals, always had animals. When I was a kid I'd have I'd have a menagerie of them. Yeah, but seeing seeing the loyalty and the love of of dogs like that yeah, it sort of makes you think that you know there, there is something else. There's something greater to life. And, and you know, know I've it's seen, amazing. I've seen incredibly hard men break down over the loss of their dog. You know, they could have lost their wife or child even, and would have been stoic through that. But at the loss of a dog, they would have been they. An example: we had a an Aboriginal horse tailor. A horse tailor is a guy who looks after the horses for the stock camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an Aboriginal guy, a wonderful black fella, Archie, on this property we worked at. And when we were out mustering, the, you know, I was part of the mustering camp. I, you know, quite often I'd stay in a swag with them overnight or I'd eat with them during the day. And get, you get to know them really well because it's a, it's a full-on operation that you're involved in. Mm-hmm. Men, men working hard with other men to bring thousands of head of wild cattle together. It's pretty amazing to watch. Mm. Archie was given the job of looking after all the horses, the spare horses, the plant horses we called them. He would wander on behind the mob, behind the muster with his own horse, his own trusty steed and um, and his two blue heeler dogs and they would keep the herd of horses together so that the stockmen had fresh horses to ride each day. Archie had a swag for each one of his dogs. He idolised them. <laughs> he loved them. And one particular night he got drunk. We, we found out later that he was drinking lemon essence. He would had gotten hold of some lemon essence from the camp cook. What's that? You know, lemon flavour. Lemon flavour. Alcohol base. Very heavy alcohol okay. base. Yeah, and, right. um, and he he'd consumed a large quantity of that. He got really angry with his dogs in the middle of the night because mm. they wouldn't stop whimpering. And he drew a knife and he killed them both. Oh. And then he went back to his swag. He was raging apparently. He went back to his swag and went to sleep. When he woke up the next morning, he was a sobbing mess. He couldn't believe he'd done it to his dogs. Mm. And the men tried to subdue him and he was really angry and he was um, he was an absolute mess. Anyhow, uh, that night he disappeared. We've never seen Archie again. Mm. He went walkabout. He decided that that was enough. He left his, he left his shoes next to his swag mm-hmm. and he was gone. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm sure he probably lived he went somewhere and disappeared and just walked off and met up with somebody else or whatever he did we were in the middle of nowhere but that deeply affected him i saw another guy um another guy one day a, a stockman and some of them used to carry sidearms mm-hmm. um, when we were yarding cattle they, these cattle were mainly wild and you had to 
you had to be very careful how you manage them and you, you didn't get in their way when you were mm. yarding them up. This stockman had a another cattle dog that was barking all the time and stirring these cattle up and it was pretty obvious that someone was going to get hurt if this dog didn't shut up. And the, um, the stockman that was managing the gate, the gate is where they... He stands up on a platform and he opens different gates to let cattle go into different paddocks. Some mm-hmm. cattle go bush again and you muster them next year and others go for trucking. And mm-hmm. and he was up on the gate and this dog was causing a hassle. And um, we had a thousand head of cattle that we were trying to sort through. And because the dog wouldn't stop barking, he drew his firearm and shot it. Mm-hmm. He had to do it. He just had to. He didn't have time to try and reason with the dog. Yeah, He was a mess for the rest of the day. He just broke down because mm-hmm. he raised that dog from a pup. I've seen men react in ways around the death of animals that I've I've not seen them react in around human beings. Why is that? There's this notion that we have to be tough amongst our peers and in our relationships we have to be formidable and tough and strong. But I think when it comes to animals, it's almost like we give ourselves permission to be real. Mm. And I think mm-hmm. you said it a minute ago. You said that uh, how we treat animals is a reflection of where we're at in our lives. Mm-hmm. The meanest I've ever been to an animal is is when I felt most wretched about myself. Mm. And I think animals create an environment where we have permission to be ourselves around them, as horrible as that can be sometimes. Mm. And I I often laugh when I look at certain dogs and I think how much alike their owners that they are. You know, I've always had sort of Labrador-type dogs. And look at that other dog we've got here now, Kobe, the big... He's a big white Marama sheepdog. Buffy thing. Big. He's a polar bear. Yeah, he is. You know, and I look at him and I think, yeah, he's me. You know, he he barks a bit every now and then with a deep throaty bark, and he wanders around lazily, and he's just mellow, and he just lies in the sun, and occasionally <laughs> he'll get up and have a woof. And I, I I look at him and I think, yeah, just like me. I like you. You're mm. just like me. And I've got a dog uh, who was barking a minute ago, Molly, a border collie who's highly stressed and. She's got to be loved. She's got to be touched. You know, mm. I've got to be in your face all the time. Mm. Love me, love me, mm. love me. And Kobe looks at me and says, oh, no, you love me. You feed me every night. That's that's good enough for me. Mm. You've got to love them. No, I reckon I reckon there that there's something else here too. I reckon mm. that men love their dogs so much as well, and this might be a bit philosophical, I hope not, because they see in their dogs something of who they'd like to be. Like, you know, they see this loyalty. And dogs loyalty. dogs are loyal. They see this unconditional love. You know, they see... And the dogs are basically happy and contented and peaceful. They don't need much, do they? No. And, you know, we're always striving for more and getting upset over this or that. And are we envious of our dogs? I reckon that's what I'm trying to say. You said it in, very, in a nice, simple way, Graham. Loyalty, that's a big word. Loyalty. What does loyalty mean? It means... Stickability. Stickability. Yeah. You're going to be there for someone else. You don't bite the hand that feeds you. Yeah. Dogs are loyal, aren't they? Although Toby, the Labrador we talked about, I mean, I always had a saying about him, give him a biscuit and he's yours. He was always wandering off with somebody, anybody who showed him kindness. But when I think about how I used to treat him, no wonder. But Theo, on the other hand, uh, you know, we don't need to put a lead on him when we go out to walk. Uh, he'll because he'll just hang around us, you know. That's all he does. Yeah, you know. And I mean, he thinks he's the leader of the pack, little scrawny thing. So if we say we're walking at the at the beach at the spit here on the Gold Coast, big mm. beach for dogs, yep. he'll sort of range, 
between a 10 and 15 metres ahead of us he'll, in a fanning motion yep. as we walk. Every now and then he'll look back to check that we're there. He'll run back to for us to give him a pat, to tell him he's doing a good job being a guard dog. Yep. He wouldn't scare anyone. Yeah. And he'll go, then he'll go back and continue his little patrols. He's yeah. always there. Yeah. You know, we don't have to worry. Yeah. Loyalty. I've had some loyal people in my life. You're loyal. Am I? Yeah. Huh. Guess I am. You alluded to it in a conversation yesterday when, when I first started to present in churches and stuff like that, and to speak up the front and everything. And there were sometimes you looked at me and you felt like you needed to protect me, because I came into church like a babe in the woods. Yeah, you were like a stunned rabbit in, in the headlights. In the headlights, yeah. Like coming from where I was to like I've often described my journey into a church environment as being like a front row forward in a ballet school. Or like putting me in your seven three seven cockpit. Yeah, although you can as long as you keep pressing all the buttons it'll lit up, you can get it to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's let's hope that never happens. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, I know. But um I hadn't seen that in you. Although when I think about it now, there were times that um I saw your loyalty very strongly. In fact, I know you often discredit your manliness. I've heard you. Unfortunately. I've seen you exhibit courage in the face of fire that um, was absolutely memorable. Mm. You stood really strong. When I was uh, shattered, when I had no strength to fight back, you stood really strong. And like our mate Jeff. Mm. He's a good man, Jeff. Jeff Donovan. Carried incredible stress in the job that he had, but kept keeping on anyway. He was uh, he was our church pastor. He was. He'd go out and do, oh, man, we're making church sound like a battleground. Can be. Can be. But he would go out and fight these incredible battles with, with strength and courage, and then he'd go somewhere later that day and probably sit down and have a cry, you know, like mm. um, feel the fear and do it anyway mm. kind of loyalty. Um, and he never backed down, and you never backed down. And... Um, some of the times when I feel the greatest strength is when I'm the most frightened. I just feel like this situation requires some loyalty. You know, you cannot stand and let bad things happen to good people. Sometimes you just have to say, hang on a minute, stop that. Mm. You know, you have, to, you have to stand up and be loyal even to people you don't even know, to a cause you may not understand. What are the things that a man has to be loyal to? Well, I think for a start you have to, you have to define what your beliefs are, who you're, what your identity is and be loyal to that. That's the first thing you have to do. I think, you know, who am I? My definition of who I am now is I'm Graham Hood. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ and I struggle with addictive behaviours like pornography and, you know, those behaviours don't define me. My identity is in who I serve and I serve Christ. Um, I like to think that I um, that I put on a suit of armour every day and go out there and stand under his banner because... Mm. I believe everybody benefits when we do that, when we stand. And so he's my identity, but understanding that there are certain values that need to be stood for. And a man's got to be loyal to his wife. Absolutely. I I, I, I haven't been. I am to my current wife, but I, mm. I wasn't to my first wife. I was, um, this is probably a topic for another another discussion, but... Probably is. You know, some of the biggest decisions we make in our life are made when we have the least amount of wisdom to afford mm. them. My loyalty to my wife is to Michelle is um, unquestioned. I mean, she knows it too, and I, I can see that she knows it, mm-hmm. and that strengthens me even more because mm-hmm. I know she feels safe in the love that I have for her. She knows that um, 
she's standing on solid ground with me. Mm. And that's really bizarre because she's a survivor of childhood sexual abuse Mm -hmm. and she was abused in a previous relationship in a very bad way and that lasted for 30 years. And within 15 minutes of meeting me, I declared to her that I was a sex addict with a porn addiction. That would have been helpful. Well, you wouldn't have, why would a woman who'd been through all that at the hands of men who were lustful and driven by other things, why would she decide that she would trust me? Mm-hmm. But what I realised, I actually saw her trusting me and I realised I needed to be trustworthy. Mm. I needed to be trusted. So therefore I needed to live a life that engendered and underscored that trust and faith that she had in me. So I had to be honourable and courageous. And that's, you know what, I've been seeking that ever since I was a kid. Hmm. I think it's innate in all of us. And you found it. I'm one of the lucky ones who found it. Indeed. And 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 for me, that's how we treat our wives and the people in it that we're in relationship with and our children. Yeah, a man's got to be loyal to his family. He's got to be loyal to his family. He's got to be loyal to his mates. Yeah. You know, the, the circle of, of other men that we have around us who... Don't lead us down the wrong paths, but these are the men who hold us accountable. It's community. You know, who help us be better men, better husbands, better fathers, mm. you know, better, better citizens. I realised as um, I came out of the depression that brought me close to suicide and I started to turn my life around and I had to claim certain things that, um, that I wouldn't have claimed in my previous life and that was faith and all that sort of stuff. A lot of the friends, so-called friends I had in the previous part of my life disappeared when I defined mm. myself. And what I realised was that they weren't really friends, they were just acquaintances. And we lived in a shallow relationship. It was always about the football and the weather and uh, the fishing mm. and the, uh, you know, a bit of politics and all that, but we never really got deep. Mm. Uh, we sort of like going to the Great Barrier Reef. You know, the people who get the most benefit of the Great Barrier Reef are those who do a scuba course and... Mm. and don the aqualungs and they go down, you know, 30, 40, 50 feet to look at what's down there. Most of us just swim on the surface within snorkel range of the oxygen mm. above and and I think um, a lot of our friendships are defined like that. I've got a lot of acquaintances but I've got few real friends and I've given them permission and they me to hold each other accountable. Mm. You're one of them. Oh, look, I, Glad for I, I'm an introvert. I talk too much but I'm, a, I'm an introvert and I have few few close friends mm. uh, and uh, and you are one of them too, Graeme. Well, that's, Don't a mutual, you worry. that's a mutual benefit thing. That's why we call this mates in courage. That's what it is, yeah. Well, I've got another thought about loyalty though. Mm. I think loyalty, I said it was stickability before, but it's more than just being there. It's being there, having something to offer, these sorts of things that we've been talking about. One thing about I like about dogs is that I don't think a dog ever woke up in the morning and thought, I'd love to be a cat. <laughs> Dogs are just comfortable in their own skin, you know? Yeah, yeah they, so true. They know who they are. Yeah. Some small dogs think that they're huge. Some huge dogs think that they're small, but We've still. got an example of that here. Yeah. <laughs> little Jackie, he's a little Maltese Shih Tzu cross and he thinks he's a Border Collie. Yeah. He's the same colour. Yeah. But, you know, that's adorable. But still, basically, they, they know who they are. They're, they're comfortable in their own, in their own skin. Mm. And that's what every man wants to be. That's what every man needs to be uh, so that, you know, they have something to offer. If you want to be loyal like dogs are loyal, it's not just that they're there, but they're there. They're offering mateship, you know, companionship. You can rely on them. That's what we all crave, isn't it? I had a little bits of dog called Bobby. 
and he occupied the shed and the uh, property I lived on where I um, I had a workshop. I, used to, I loved working with timber and making furniture and stuff. And mm. At the depth of my depression, prior to the date I'd set to kill myself, I was going to kill myself in the shed. Bobby used to come in and sit with me and I'd sit there from 8 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon listening to talkback radio and watching the clock tick on the wall. I'd had all this timber and tools ready to work and I couldn't do anything. I just sat there. Yeah. And I'd look at the sawdust on the floor at the end of the day and there was an arc in the uh, sawdust where Bobby had been sitting next to me wagging his tail <laughs> all day long. He'd just sit there looking at me, looking at me, watching me and um, yeah. I'll never forget that. That was a horrible time but he was there and he kept always trying to encourage Mm. And just him being there, every now and then I'd put my hand down beside the chair I was sitting on and I'd feel him and I'd just pat him and he'd respond and he'd lick my hand and he'd just say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And that. And um, and he was happy in his own skin. Mm. He was happy with his surroundings and everything that he was being given. He didn't want for anything. He didn't feel a need to mm. improve. He was just who he was. Mm. And some of the nicest guys that we know, you and I know, are really happy in their own skin. You look at Kim. We're talking about a mate of ours who may hear this, he may not, Kim yeah. Romas. He's just, um, you know, he was a director of a big company that made a lot of money and mm-hmm. and then they went they went south one day and he lost everything. And But in the losing of everything, he gained so much. And he's just this really mellow, comfortable guy to be around. He's non-judgmental. Mm. He's, uh, he's always laughing. He's always been a twit. He's one of our mates and um, he's weathered a few storms. He carries a couple of scars. But, you know, he's the kind of guy you miss when he's not around. Mm. So, Graham, am I getting there? Getting there? Yeah. I thought you were there already. Oh, no, probably not quite, but I'm, on the, I'm well on the journey. Well, isn't that the most important thing, being on the journey? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, we just talked about one guy, Kim. If you asked him, is he there yet, he'd say no. No. He's not there yet. He's, he's about to move to the Cook Islands and... He's going to live an idyllic life going out catching fish and selling them at the markets and doing all that sort of stuff and helping people as well. He's got a lovely giving heart and he's got a beautiful family which reflects mm. his strength of character. His kids and everything are amazing. Mm. But if you ask him, he would say he's not, he's not there yet. I don't think we're ever there. You know, Graham, there's a lot we can learn from dogs. There is. But there's one problem with them. They don't live long enough. Oh, don't get me going. No. Don't get me going. Um... You know, it's kind of like when I first met Michelle, we had four beautiful days together and the first two days of our time together was amazing and the second two days was miserable because we knew it was coming to an end. Mm. And uh, that's what it's like with a living with a dog. You know, you love them and you think, oh, man, I've only got... You know, Michelle's got a habit of saying, oh, it's Molly's birthday today. She's eight years old. And I say, I don't want to know because mm. that means I've only got about four or six years left of mm. it. Do you know, I, uh, when I was a straight-laced theologian... People will ask me, will dogs be in heaven? Yeah. Will our pets be in heaven? And my answer, because I was very straight-laced, was always no. Yeah. Why? I mean, I won't go into it, but, you know, I don't know. They're not humans. They don't have a soul. They don't sin, you know, so if they don't, anyway, whatever. But now, you know what? I reckon dogs will be in heaven because I think everything good and pure and noble is going to be up there. Well, they certainly give an indication of, I believe, and I, I don't, some people might think I'm being disrespectful, but... The word God and the word dog have the same letters in them and, and I think I think a dog demonstrates the kind of way that God loves us in the forgiveness and the grace and the always ever presence, always mm. there. Mm. And I think that's a lovely way to 
to think about a, a dog and, and to aspire to be like a dog. Graham, your dog. It <laughs> <That> just <laughs> doesn't, doesn't work. But we started up with uh, horses and cattle and kangaroos and we moved through dingoes onto dogs. And then God. And then God. Good yeah. place to end. Good place to end. Yeah. I'm going to go out and give my dog a pat on the strength of that. Yeah, well, you should. Tell him I love him. Yeah, I'll do the same when I get home. Love you too, mate. Thanks, Graeme. Cheers. Mates in Courage, brought to you by Good News Unlimited. To sign up for Graham and Ellie's daily spiritual message emails about recovering from addictions, hurts and hang-ups, visit goodnewsunlimited.com. To book Graham and Ellie for talks, get in touch at the same website. And if you're troubled by anything you've heard, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or an equivalent service in your own country. Thanks for listening. Mates in Courage. Catch you in the next episode.